Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Forming the government of Bosnia back in 1995 was a delicate diplomatic effort that put the country's horrific war behind it. Now that power-sharing accord seems gravely threatened by nationalism on one side and ethnic tensions on the other. And somehow the principle from hunting of you kill it, you eat it doesn't tend to hold when it comes to roadkill. In fact, until recently, eating roadkill was illegal in Wyoming. We ask why the law has changed there and in other states. But first... Today, Japan's government released data showing that the country's economy had grown by 1.7% last year, the first time in three years it expanded rather than shrank. It's happy news, but not as happy as other countries' recoveries from the economic hit of the pandemic. And things won't improve anytime soon. Last week, Japan extended its quasi-state of emergency in Tokyo and several prefectures as the Omicron variant continued to spread. Negligible or negative economic growth has been a problem for generations of Japanese prime ministers going back to the early 1990s. When he was elected last year, Kishida Fumio said he was aiming to realize a new capitalism. But so far, there's not a whole lot new going on. When Kishida Fumio became Japan's prime minister last October, he came out with a bold-sounding agenda that he called New Capitalism. He claimed that this would be the recipe to lead Japan to a virtuous cycle of growth and distribution. Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. He's now been in office for over four months, and in that time he's sought to flesh out his signature initiative. Flesh out how? What are his plans? The list of plans under the the new capitalism banner is long and growing. Uh, It ranges from raising wages to fostering startups to revitalizing rural regions to reducing carbon emissions to stemming inequality. And while these are all certainly sensible ideas, uh, they're not exactly unfamiliar ones, nor are they likely, in the opinion of most economists, to do much to jumpstart Japan's economy. So before we get into dissecting Mr. Kishida's plans, uh, tell us of the the problems that Japan is facing that he's trying to solve. Well, Japan's biggest challenges for for a long time have been demographic, uh, primarily. Japan has a shrinking, aging population, and that weighs on the economy in a number of ways. There are fewer workers and more old people for the government to take care of. 
Japan has generally resisted opening up to more immigration and its birth rate has has remained quite low. So those are the big structural problems that one prime minister after another have been trying to tackle. And so what is it that Mr. Kishida is proposing to solve those? Kishida's put forward a number of ideas, but none of them are especially new. He's talked a lot about raising wages, for example, which is something that Abe Shinzo, who was prime minister from 2012 to 2020, also talked a lot about to little avail. He's uh, unleashed a set of development plans that he calls uh, digital garden city nation, basically investments in digital infrastructure to revive rural areas. Also a sensible idea, but basically an update of a set of garden city policies that former prime minister Ohira Masayoshi advocated for back in the 1970s. And to finance these plans, he's going to rely on massive fiscal stimulus and and relatively loose monetary policy, which has been a cornerstone of Japan's economic policy since the Abe era. In fact, those were the first two of the three eras that made up Abenomics. The biggest changes under Mr. Kishida have really been rhetorical more than anything else. The implication here is that these policies won't work. Why not? Well, a lot of them are things that have been tried before and haven't really produced the results that folks are hoping for. Take wages. In Japan, wages have been stagnant for the better part of a few decades. Getting them up would be good for workers. It would help stimulate demand across the economy. And there are a lot of novel things that a prime minister might try. Economists point to raising the minimum wage or to more uh, strictly enforcing equal pay for equal work laws. Uh, There are a whole host of labor market reforms that would likely help. But for the most part, Mr. Kishida's approach has been similar to Mr. Abe's. He's offered a one-off raise to some public sector employees. He's encouraged private firms to do the same, browbeating them and rewarding those who comply with subsidies and tax breaks. These are tools that have been tried in the past, but to little avail. Similarly, there are new approaches that a prime minister might take to reducing carbon emissions, um, maybe introducing a carbon tax or making a commitment to ditch coal. But Kishida has resisted both of those steps in deference to Japanese industry. And you see that same pattern on a whole host of issues. Well, the one thing that has changed, the one thing you say is new, though, is the rhetoric. What do you mean by that? It's an interesting change of tone, at the very least, both from Abe Shinzo and from Suga Yoshihide, Mr. Kishida's immediate predecessor. Those two like to talk a lot about reform and structural changes. Mr. Kishida instead prefers to rage against neoliberalism, uh, which is sort of shorthand in Japan for market-friendly reforms, steps to encourage more competition. He talks a lot about worsening inequality, about deepening poverty, and he talks very little about reform itself. Kishida is not wrong that Japan could be more equal. Uh, If you look at the Gini coefficient, which is a, a measure of, of inequality, it's slightly worse than the average of the OECD. But his rhetoric reveals a kind of misdiagnosis of the most pressing ills facing Japan. You don't really see a growing gulf of inequality. It's not so much that Japan has turned into a neoliberal bastion. The problem instead is more of a lack of dynamism. So there is this lack of dynamism, and uh, indeed in the plans Mr. Kishida has, there's not a whole lot new. How is that landing with the Japanese people? They must know they're being sold old ideas. Actually, Kishida's new capitalism, I think, is cannier as domestic politics than it is as uh, economic policy. It's actually going over quite well with the public at large. Um, It's helped Kishida differentiate himself from his predecessors. It's helped deprive the opposition of a useful talking point. 
And voters largely have been happy with Kishida so far. His approval ratings have stayed near 60% for most of his time in office so far. And that leaves him in a pretty good position to sail through his next electoral challenge, an upper house vote due this summer. After that election, Kishida will potentially have three years before he needs to face voters again. So maybe by that time, new capitalism will contain something truly new. Noah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bosnia is under serious strain, and what's behind it is troublingly familiar. The Bosnian war that began in 1992 was a complicated business, coming at the end of the even more complicated business of Yugoslavia's disintegration, its balkanization. The war was also brutal, born of ethnic conflict between Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims known as Bosniaks. In the end, peace was brokered thousands of miles away on an American Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. November 1995, a deal was struck. A war that has become a byword for bigotry, hatred, and the most senseless brutality. A war that has tortured the consciences of the rest of Europe, consigned this afternoon to history. The Dayton Accords created a kind of three-way leadership of Bosnia, representation for its different constituencies built in. After nearly four years of 250,000 people killed, two million refugees, Atrocities that have appalled people all over the world. The people of Bosnia finally have a chance to turn from the horror of war to the promise of peace. That promised peace did come, but recently it's been looking shaky. Bosnia is being attacked in inverted commas from really two different directions. Tim Judah is our Balkans correspondent. There's uh, Bosnian Serb leaders who are pressing for an effective separation from the country, and um, Bosnian Croat leaders who are effectively threatening to scupper elections. So these together make up the most serious crisis or crises that Bosnia has faced since the end of the war in 1995. So what is the political makeup of the country now? Well, the Dayton Accords that ended the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1995 set up a country with a very loose central government, but underneath it, it had uh, two entities. One is the Republika Srpska, which is basically Serbian-dominated, and the other is the so-called Federation, where Bosnian Muslims share power with Bosnian Croats. Now, the small government of the state of Bosnia and Herzegovina had very few powers, but over the years, various powers have been granted to it, and they've created an army and things like that. And now, Milorad Dodik, the Bosnian Serb leader, has begun a process to take those powers back and to recreate an army 
for the Bosnian Serbs. And that's really uh, secession in all but name. And the main Bosnian Croat party, which doesn't have a separate entity for Bosnian Croats, is um, moving or trying to create a Bosnian Croat entity, the so-called third entity. So this is why we've got crisis on all sides. You say that one of the sources of tension here is from the, the Bosnian Serb leader, Mr. Dodik. Tell me a bit about him. Well, after the Bosnian War, Mr. Dodik was um, seen as something of a breath of fresh air. In fact, he was promoted by Western countries who were fed up with the old wartime leaders of the Republika Srpska still being in power. But, you know, over the years, he sort of morphed into those leaders. He's extremely powerful. He's allegedly extremely rich. And he um, will not hesitate to use nationalism and extremely provocative language if that um, enhances his position. He has supporters from outside, especially uh, Russia. And within the EU, it's above all Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, who's uh, recently been supporting him. And why is it that he's stirring up all of these tensions now? Does it just come down to his own nationalism? I have no doubt that, you know, he is a nationalist at heart, but I mean, there are all sorts of other things at play here. Let me give you an example. Last year, businessmen close to him were found to have been uh, supplying industrial grade oxygen to COVID patients. This had not been approved by Bosnia's uh, medical agency. And when it was found out, there were demonstrations, but he managed to sort of divert everyone's attention by saying, right, we're going to set up our own Republika Srpska medical agency. The Dayton Accords, although they brought peace to the country, they've also created a kind of massive system which encourages corruption. And this is one of the really big problems of Bosnia. And the other half of the story, the other half of the tension here, it comes from the Federation side. What's going on there? The problem with the Federation is that it's a much more complicated entity than the Republika Srpska, which is basically sort of one unit. The Federation is actually made up of uh, 10 cantons, and in some Bosnian Croats dominate, and in some Bosniaks, who used to be called Bosnian Muslims, dominate. But for certain things within the Federation, like the two delegates to the three-person presidency, they vote together. The problem in the federation is that Bosniaks outnumber Croats, and what this has meant is that uh, Jelko Komšić, who is the Croat delegate on the uh, presidency, is actually elected by Bosniak votes. And this is something that uh, rankles many Croats, and it certainly rankles the leading Bosnian Croat party, which has been demanding electoral reform. US and EU diplomats have been absolutely unable to uh, find a way uh, around this. But unless they do, the HDZ, the leading Bosnian Croat party, is threatening to scupper this year's elections across the whole of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And if that happens, that's a real disaster if there are no elections in the country. All the way down the system, these things have ramifications. So, for example, the country has the second highest death toll from COVID relative uh, to population in Europe. I mean, these things are a direct result of, you know, ineffective government. But this kind of uh, reveals a, a resurging ethnic tension that got us to the Dayton Accords in the first place. Do you see real potential for actual conflict? I actually don't see potential for a sort of real all-out war as we had in 1995. That would require Serbia and Croatia to be involved, and I don't think that they really have an interest in getting involved. But there are plenty of people with arms and plenty of small armed groups, and, you know, they could certainly get involved in violent incidents. Western countries, for sure, are certainly very worried about this. The Americans have already introduced uh, sanctions on Mr. Dodik for attempting to dismantle Dayton and for corruption. On the other hand, you know, the Russians, they're very happy for Mr. Dodik to create trouble 
in Europe's backyard. So they've definitely been encouraging Mr. Dodik. And of course, under the present circumstances, what really does worry people is that if war does break out in Ukraine, the Russians might sort of encourage Mr. Dodik to move towards secession and cause complete chaos in Bosnia. So as a sort of distract the Americans and Europeans who would be trying to deal with Ukraine. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Picture a sizzling steak on the grill. Aaron Braun is our Mountain West correspondent. You're outside, you're in Wyoming somewhere, and you're cooking this to go with a lovely meal that you're preparing. It's costing you pretty much nothing. It has a zero carbon footprint, and it was relatively easy to put together. I'm I'm sensing there's going to be a catch with this. Well, it might be free, but you might need a paint job on your car's front bumper because the meal is actually a deer that you hit while driving on the road earlier in the day. So in Wyoming, this scene that we've painted actually would have been illegal until last month. And, and what's changed? Why, why is this free, easy meal legal now? Well, last year, the state legislature in Wyoming passed a law saying that it would become legal to harvest roadkill, either to eat it or to salvage a deer's antlers, for example. But it took most of last year to kind of write the regulation, and those regulations only went into effect in January. And what that means is a Wyomingite can be driving down the road and If unfortunately they hit an animal or they happen upon it on the side of the road, they can report it to the local game and fish department and then collect it and take it home with them. And not everything is fair game. They can't take grizzly bears or gray wolves and they can't take endangered species. But mule deer and moose and elk, those are fair game. And, and why is it that authorities have changed the rule on this in the first place? The law has a couple of benefits. The first one is kind of obvious. Roadkill is a source of fresh meat for poor rural communities that might not otherwise been able to afford it. And it's kind of interesting. Some environmental groups like PETA, for one, actually argue that eating roadkill is healthier and more ethical than buying meat raised for slaughter that might be chock full of a bunch of hormones. And then there's a couple of reasons specific to Wyoming that make the law beneficial. The first is that allowing residents themselves to get roadkill off the street can cut down on the time that the animals spend on the side of the road, and that might be a safety hazard. States like Wyoming or in neighboring states like Montana, highways are long. It takes hours and hours to cross the state, so officials might not get to that animal for a day or more. Um, And then there's one more big benefit with respect to the data that the Game and Fish Department is collecting from the program. And what benefit is that? Wyoming's Game and Fish Department thinks that there are about 6,000 collisions between vehicles and big game each year, and that makes up about 15% of all car crashes in the state, and it's similar in other states as well. 
And because Wyomingites have to report the location of the roadkill before they can take it home with them, that gives officials all kinds of data on where car crashes between cars and big game most often happen. And then they can help the state figure out how they're going to address that, whether it's maybe building a highway overpass, putting up fences, or even just putting up wildlife crossing signs in the area. It all sounds fairly win-win, except for the game in question, I suppose. Are there any drawbacks to this? There are a few. There are some things that folks are worried about. The concern that I came across most often was from environmentalists who are worried that hunters might use the law as an excuse to take more animals than they otherwise would or to hunt something that they're not permitted to hunt. And then others worry about Wyomingites ending up eating rancid meat that they should not have. And I asked the Game and Fish Department about these worries. And in true Wyoming fashion, they said, you know, it's on the onus of the person collecting the roadkill to decide if they want to eat it or not. But Wyoming is by no means the first state to enact one of these laws. At least 20 other states have some kind of roadkill salvage program. And for those who are intrigued by the prospect, there are cookbooks offering myriad ways to serve up roadkill. Do you find yourself tempted? Do you want some squashed meat? I do find myself tempted. I think if a nice, friendly Wyomingite offered me up some venison, I would jump at the chance. Erin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 